During November and December 2021, I spent more than a month in the northeastern U.S. developing content for GeoTrack. This work includes the production of four previous podcasts, including an episode on ice jams, which are floods that come from uh, blocks of ice in rivers backing up water, a focus on impacts of weather and climate on Vermont maple syrup production, and two episodes on adapting to life in the heart of the snow belt near New York's Tug Hill Plateau. The latest episode of the GeoTrek podcast is going to close out our, our last podcast from the winter of 21-22. But before we get to it, this is an exciting time to look back on the winter snowfall and the winner of the Golden Snow Globe National Snow Contest. This is a yearly annual contest that looks at which big city receives the most snowfall. The contest defines big cities as population centers exceeding 100,000 people as of April 26, 2022. And assuming we don't see a big late spring snowstorm in one of these cities, we at GeoTrack would like to announce the snowiest big city for this past winter. Wait, I think we need a drum roll here. Do we have a drum roll sound bite? Well, if not, we want to announce the city, the winner for the Golden Snow Globe. Winner of 21-22 is Buffalo, New York. Buffalo wins the contest for the second time. It also won in 2018 and 2019. Actually, upstate New York is no stranger to winning the Golden Snow Globe. Rochester, New York won it once, and Syracuse, New York has won it more than any other city. They've won it four times. So cumulatively, Upstate New York has seven titles out of 13 years that the contest has been going on. So upstate New York is a very snowy place that has to do a lot with the snow coming off Lake Erie and Ontario. The five snowiest big cities for this past winter season were Buffalo, New York at 96 inches, Anchorage, Alaska at 89.3 inches, Rochester, New York, 87 inches, Boulder, Colorado, 80.4 inches, and Syracuse, New York comes in fifth with 76 inches. That's for cities with at least 100,000 people in the United States. Strangely enough, Buffalo won the competition even though its snowfall was less than one inch above normal. Usually through late April, Buffalo averages 95.1 inches of snow. Had either Rochester or Syracuse observed normal snowfall for the winter, they would have won first place, But Syracuse, with Syracuse finishing ahead of Rochester if they both were normal. They both get over 100 inches of snow per, per year. That stat helps tell the story that this was not a very snowy winter for most of the continental U.S., in fact, in the 13 years that the Golden Snow Globe competition has existed, this is only the fourth time that the winning city observed less than 100 inches of snow. That said, we did have some high-profile snowstorms this past winter. In late January, a blizzard dumped more than two feet of snow in eastern New England. Blizzard conditions were reported multiple times in the Dakotas and eastern Montana, and a major Christmas week snowstorm buried the Sierras and blew 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts near the Nevada-California border. Fortunately, one thing we did not observe during the winter of 21-22 was a major crippling ice storm with high impact. Although multiple East Coast storms brought snow and ice to southern locations, like Virginia and the Carolinas, nothing came close to the catastrophic ice storm that struck upstate New York and southern portion of Quebec and Ontario in Canada in January of 1998. This podcast is going to look a little bit at that uh, in depth at that uh, big ice storm of January 98. This storm created days of heavy rain that froze on contact to trees, electric lines, and utility poles. It created a mass massive power outage over a large area that lasted for weeks to even months in remote locations. 
I researched the ice storm impacts and lessons learned from locals in extreme Northeast New York during December 2021. I learned profound lessons that relate to other hazards as well. So if you're in hurricane country or threatened by severe weather or even wildfires, but you don't tend to get a lot of ice storms where you live, these lessons that we learned on this podcast may still relate to you. But before we get started, I wanted to encourage you to please subscribe to our podcast. Your subscription helps us monitor progress, sets the stage for us to develop more professional partnerships and really helps us as we move forward. Now let's get to our latest podcast called Lessons Learned from the 1998 Ice Storm in Upstate New York. And again, this storm did affect Canada as well. I didn't cross over into Canada to do interviews. I absolutely would have, but because of the pandemic and the border being shut down, I did not cross over the border. Much of the podcast is recorded is a recorded conversation I had with village historian Brandon Racine and trustee Ben Arno in the village of Rouse's Point, New York. Rouse's Point is at the very northeast corner of New York State bordering Canada to the north and Vermont to the east. It sits in an idyllic setting on the western end of Lake Champlain. Without further ado, let's get into these conversations we had at Rouse's Point with um, with Brendan Racine and Ben Arno. It's Tuesday, December 14th. I'm in Rouse's Point with, it's Brandon Racine, is that correct? And you're the village historian? Yes, I am. I really appreciate you taking time. No problem. appreciate your interest. Yeah, so 1998, there was this massive ice storm in uh, parts of upstate New York and over in Canada as well. What were the local impacts here near Rouse's Point? Um, powder outages, um, home damage. Uh, it was, uh, you know, trees falling down. It, it, was, it was pretty rough here. It was many days of freezing rain, right? Uh, and right. glaze. Correct, yes, yes. Um, I, I know for a fact my, my family home was pretty much uh, put out of commission. The pipes froze in the walls, the heating system, and many people uh, had to uh, find alternate turns of electricity and heat, and some of the families even got together and bundled up together. Neighbors took in neighbors. And yeah, because this is a winter time, obviously. It's just, uh, you know, very cold, and all of a sudden people lost power, right? Right, and then the roads were closed to non-essential travel, so it was basically just emergency and uh, tow trucks and police. So people couldn't get out to work. They couldn't get out to get supplies. They didn't have generators. It just was uh, very hard. Do you think most people had enough emergency supplies at home, or do you think some were blindsided by the the magnitude of this? Oh, definitely some were blindsided that today I'm sure they're prepared. Um, At least they have a a certain amount of water and food supplies. I know I keep uh, uh, at least a six-month for people um, supply of food and water in my home. So the amount that you have now, is that different than it would have been before the ice storm? Like, do you think the ice storm kind of changed the local thinking on emergency preparedness? Yes, it did. Um, I was one of the more luckier people. I was living in Champlain, and I had purchased a generator three months before in anticipation for this and my time I spent in the woods. And we were lucky that we had propane um, hot water. We had uh, kerosene pot burner heat. Um, we had the generator. Um, I had a freezer full of venison. So, I mean, I was one of the luckier people that really wasn't hurt too badly by it. Someone told me with these massive ice storms, you almost have to think of yourself as being prepared to go camping, right? Because that's essentially what you're doing even in your home if you right. maybe have so, proposed. You have to have everything you need to, to, for your, 
you know, for your camping needs when you're out in the woods. And the same thing with this one, the ice storm hit, you had to have everything you needed at home to survive or you were, you know, out of luck. So as far as like uh, village offices, schools, things like that, how, how long were things closed for? Um, it was a couple of weeks things were locked up. Wow, that's a, that's, that's a long time, especially in that part of January. Yes, it was. And, and for people not getting heat through their whole house, you know, I mean, a lot of people that did have little fireplaces and whatnot were, were stuck in, you know, just a portion of their home. I see. Maybe spending multiple days or, or even longer just by a, a wood stove or a fireplace, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. The old, you know, just trying to stay warm and stay fed and uh, get through it till the roads opened up and uh, could get their life back together. So, what were some of the big lessons learned here, or ways that it changed the village? Um, the village went all underground with its power lines, so there wasn't anything that could be broken, you know, after that, like today from the ice storm, where, where you know, just the main feeds coming in. So, uh, the chances of a, an accident from uh, branches falling off the trees i mean you could hear the the, the trees some limbs snapping in our bedroom wow so there was just a lot of uh, i heard people saying it almost sounded like a shotgun at times of tree limbs breaking oh, exactly, and yeah. falling so putting the utility lines underground i guess really keep that from happening again yes and, and it would save ross's point a lot of expense in the future for repairs you know it was a, a investment for the village that's a good point. Even just last week, there were some really strong winds and uh, tree tree branches down. But again, uh, long term, that's going to help by having the utility lines underground. Just, just the day before yesterday, we had 80 mile an hour winds and moors, and it, it bent a two inch pole on my windmill. Because wow. so, I went all um, solar and wind power out of my property on moors where I'm off the grid. So, yeah. You know, I used to live on the Pennsylvania-New York border, but a friend of mine moved to Rouse's Point from down there. And just for context, we're right on the Canadian border and just really a mile or two from Vermont as well. So well, Just as close to Vermont, it's just the lake separates us there. And yeah. then the, the border to Canada is just you know, right, right, right right on the edge of town. And my friend that moved here said uh, just how windy it tends to be up here. It, it seems like strong winds are something that happens regularly up here. Yeah, I think the um, access from the lake, you know, it, it, it gives it room to blow. Yeah. Yeah, we have very strong winds. So it helps probably having the utility lines underground. You, you can uh, that'll help you in ice storms, but also probably in wind storms as well. Oh, for sure. You know, Ross's point. I've, I've got to give them credit. The the people in charge here were very smart to move to underground. Yeah, and and probably people got behind that if they suffered through that ice storm. Yes, they did, and also too, it uh, it it opens up the town. You know what I mean? It, it gives it more. Uh, yeah, less uh, visual. Um, less less yeah, clutter. yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Less clutter and less service and less poles that have to be changed or modified. Yeah. And it looks better. Yes, it does. It does. Yeah. It, 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 it's a very beneficial uh, move for Ross's point. Yeah. I think uh, other towns and communities would would that that were subject to this would benefit from the same procedure. Is there a, a big cost up front to do that? Was there any pushback from people? I don't, I don't know, like, the cost to get all the lines underground. Well, they were talking about it before, and I think there was a push of people against it because of the cost. But after being what they went through, people went along with it. Yeah, sure. If you've been there in the dark and in the cold like that, um, you're saying, we don't want to do this again. Yeah, they, they saw the benefit of having it. This is Ben Arno, uh, Ross's Point. I worked for the village of Ross's Point for 37 and a half years. I was their electrical supervisor, and uh, during the ice storm, we had a lot, a lot of problems. So, I mean, had you ever, had there ever been a storm of that magnitude in this area before? No, 
not that I know of. Not, well, I think back in 1909, there was a big windstorm and stuff like that. Knocked trees down and a few buildings and stuff like that and everything. But it was, it was pretty bad back then, too. So, I mean, what are your recollections of the 98 ice storm? I mean, so you were, you were working there in, uh, in utility, right? So right. you probably have, obviously, some really interesting insights on just the impacts of that and what it took to get the power restored and, and rebuilt. Yes, uh, we had uh, four different uh, municipalities that come up from, uh, like, Syracuse and uh, Utica and stuff like that that we had. They worked with us and different crews and stuff like that. There was only three of us on, or four of us on the electric crew at the time. And so we only had one bucket truck and, or no, we had two bucket trucks, I'm sorry. We had two bucket trucks at the time. How did you even get started? I mean, it sounds like the magnitude of this was just so huge. Well, it started like at nine o'clock at night and they called us in because some of the uh, wires were falling down and branches were breaking and stuff like that. And we took and stayed up that night and stuff, and it kept getting worse during the day. And then the next day, it kept getting worse. And then next thing you know, the telephone poles were falling over and stuff. There was so much uh, ice on the wires and stuff, it just pulled the poles right over, one right after another, like dominoes and stuff. So you didn't even really need a tree to fall on a line. There was so much ice on the wires that that was actually bringing down poles. Yes. Yeah. I mean... We had, I think, altogether 96 poles that went down in the village wow. and stuff. And how thick was the ice in general? Uh, probably three inches, four inches, some places on, on the wires and stuff like that. And a lot of the trees got damaged. I got pictures that I could show you at some of the places where the poles just went, just like, gone i mean you know wire transformers everything so when whole poles are gone like that how do you rebuild that well we had a company come in and set our poles we had two diggers they set new poles and stuff like that we had get new poles in from uh, a pole company because we didn't we had some in stock but not that many we got some from the phone company and stuff from champlain telephone and we set them all up and stuff like that and everything and we go out we'd work 10 hours a day we put the Anchorage uh, Hotel in on power, first of all, so the, the, all the linemen that come in could stay there and stuff. And the restaurants, we already had uh, underground power downtown, so they had, uh, they had power and stuff like that. So. But we started back putting the power in in 91, underground power and oh, stuff. Oh, so like you had that. already started that process uh, downtown? Yes, yes. All the all the downtown area was uh, underground ninety one and ninety two. Oh, so that was you know a good uh, six seven years before the big ice storm. Oh yes, yes, yeah. So that really probably helped quite a bit. Oh my God, yes, it helped. Terrific and yeah. stuff like that. We had to shut our substation down and go in with fire trucks. And Wyeth at the time was was open, and they had a big hot water tank, like three hundred thousand gallons of hot water. And we piped it over to us with fire trucks, and we took and hosed the substation down so nothing in there would really go crazy and stuff like that and break and stuff. And so, so you could get the hot, you could basically pump the hot water just to melt things and to keep things ice free in there. Yes, yes, yeah. Um, what, what about this? Um, we're on an international border here, we're just uh, a, a mile or two from Canada. 
Um, I had heard that the U.S. supplied power to Canada at this time. Do you know anything about that? Yes, that was up on Route 276, but that was NYSIC that supplied uh, Canada with power and stuff like that. They run another line across the border and stuff like that and hooked them up. Well, because um, the ice storm was really bad on both sides of the border, right? Do you think the impacts in general were worse in Canada or were, were they different on one side of the border than the other? Oh, I think they were worse in Canada than here because they had a couple H-frames, which is uh, transmission lines and stuff like that, that were down and stuff. Some places over in uh, Noyan, Vermont, or Noyan, Canada, and Canic and stuff like that, they were out like for 30, 35 days. Wow. Yeah. That's tremendous. Mm-hmm. And again, this is January, so it's a pretty cold time to be without power. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I think it started January 8th, I think it was, and stuff. And it went, we went, uh, I think, 14 days, I think, 15 days without power. So about two weeks or so here yeah. in the village. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Benny, appreciate this account. Uh, before we get to your pictures, anything else? Any other thoughts on the ice storm? Maybe ways that communities can better prepare or any other, you know, if you could get in a time machine and go back to before the ice storm and, and tell people something, what would you tell them? Go underground with your cable. <laughs> yeah, definitely go underground. And well, R- Rouse's Point is an interesting case. I did not realize that the downtown area was already underground. So when the big ice storm hit, you had a, a good laboratory there to show the difference between uh, lines that are underground versus those that are above because you had both right. in the area. Yes, we did. And it helped out tremendously with the with the power and stuff like that, and especially the downtown and stuff because the restaurants and stuff were still open and one of the hotels was still open, the Holland and stuff like that. People could sleep there if they wanted. So for places that had the underground lines, did they keep power the entire time? Or, I mean, was there enough of an outage regionally that they lost for a little bit? Well, for a little bit, uh, not more than six hours, I guess, six, eight hours, stuff like that. Yeah. So there were parts of the, of downtown that only lost maybe for six or nine hours or something like that, and then they were back up. Yes, that's right, yeah. Oh, and, and that's really critical if you have a place where people can stay or food services because the linemen come in, utility workers come in, that they need services, right? Right, yes. And like Sandy's Deli was open and stuff. We, we used to go there for breakfast in the morning. And like I said, the, the linemen stayed to the Anchorage and stuff and some to the Holland and some places they stayed in. Well, they couldn't go back and forth out of town, out to Plattsburgh or nothing like that, because you, you couldn't get out on the lines and stuff. The lines and, were all down there, out that way, too. And probably the roads were very icy as well, right? Right. Also, yes. Yeah. Very icy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, you're making a good point to have underground lines and maybe at least a staging area, you know, where people can get supplies and, and rest and food. Yes. We had, we had a lot of problems getting supplies in to fix the like the transformers and stuff, because they were all broke and everything like that and everything when they fell on the ground. And But we, we got some from other companies, other villages and stuff like Tupper Lake and stuff like that, Saranac Lake. Well, you know, I just wanted to ask as far as putting the um, lines underground, if people push back saying it's too expensive, I mean, how does it work, I guess, in this part of the country as far as who pays for that or how, how it's, you know, like who does that work to put the lines underground? Is that the village? Is that the town? Is it the state? No, the village, we had a pretty good crew, and we knew what we were doing, and we did everything underground. 90% of the work we done ourselves. And uh, the phone company worked with us, and we put the cable company. Uh, the cable company supplied uh, uh, some of the pipe, and we put it in. So like most that. of it you did internally. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely we did internally, yeah. 
That probably mm-hmm. saved expense, right? You didn't have to contract this out. That's right. Yes, we didn't contract hardly nothing out at all and stuff like that. So, and, it was, and again, it sounds like after the ice storm, uh, maybe opponents of this idea changed their mind. It sounds like. Oh yeah, definitely did. Definitely, really, definitely did. Yes. Yeah, a couple of weeks in the dark, especially in the winter time up here, uh, gets you thinking. I know I've lived a lot in the Gulf Coast, and uh, you know, dealing with power outages in the summer and not having like electricity and air conditioning can be difficult. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. any other thoughts uh, from either of you guys on the on the ice storm and the recovery or lessons learned? Yeah, it's it's a lot of lessons learned. I'll tell you that. Yeah, Ross has finally learned a lesson, and they've uh, they've amended it. Yeah. You know, and some of this stuff, I think, with weather and climate hazards, it's a bit random. I mean, there there's no real reason in the climate why the bullseye is here and not uh, some other community. So, you know, sometimes other communities were, quote unquote, lucky, but they should learn from a place that was hit hard, you know, because mm-hmm. we, we see this with hurricane climate, you know, like maybe Biloxi gets hit, but um, the city to the east and west is, is okay, mm-hmm. you know, but the other cities should not uh not relax and right. say like what can we learn from from what happened in mm-hmm. in the city that got hit kind of so yep. hopefully people can learn from your experience here it sounds like you're much better prepared now oh, yeah. if something oh, like yeah. this were to happen in the future yes definitely uh we're all uh 100% underground except for probably two lines three lines just outside the well it's still in the village but it's it's in a remote well not quite a remote place but out on the outskirts of the village and stuff we didn't go underground way out there, you know, like a mile or so outside the village. Um, Thanks, guys. Appreciate you sharing about this. And uh, Brandon and I were saying, too, this is a very windy area. Like, even if you're not having ice storms, um, this area can get 70, 80-mile-an-hour wind gusts, right? So uh, you can have a power outage really any time. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it makes a difference when you're underground and when you're overhead. When you're overhead, the the lines sway and stuff like that, and the connections loosen up and everything, and – Underground, you don't have too many problems. So underground, is the line really more stable? I would say so, myself, as a lineman, you know, and stuff like that. Right, you don't have it blowing in the wind. What about accessibility? I mean, how hard is it to get to an underground line? Uh, Most of our lines are like 400 at the most, 400 feet uh, long. And so it's it's a pretty secure uh, location and stuff like that. The pipes, inside the pipes and stuff like that and everything. If if there was a problem, does the system indicate like where the problem would be? Like what if, what if an area had an outage? I mean, how would someone know like where that is? Is is there a way to know which segment has the problem? Yes, uh, we have uh, ground fault indicators on the lines and stuff, and we can go to one transformer and open it up and look, and we go to another transformer four hundred feet away and look in there, and then we can find out isolate it that way. So you can isolate to find out where the problem is if there is one. Yes, yes. Yeah. Did um, following the ice storm, did people change their source of heat? I mean, did you find more people getting wood stoves or getting away from electric heat? Um, did people make individual choices like that? No, I don't think so because we were about uh, 85% of electric heat in the village at that time. Okay. Yeah. And, well, some people still had furnace and stuff like that, you know, and and some people have wood stoves and stuff, even – one of the village crew guys that was here, uh, he always burned wood and stuff like that and everything, and I he had no wood. problem. You burn wood? I burn wood still. You still do? Yeah. yeah. It's a good secondary source, you know, oh, uh, or, or even primary. wood furnace, wood coal furnace. So is that your primary source or secondary? Uh, I have an oil furnace, but I, my prim- what I use mainly is the wood, wood coal furnace. Okay. 
Yeah, I guess that there is a value sometimes in having multiple sources, right? Or I have it set up so even the blowers on the the, the stove itself, the furnace, run without electricity from the village. I have oh. backup banks. So if if you did lose power, then you still, still could heat. Yeah, still have yeah. my heat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also have uh, some people in the village that put generators in and stuff. Uh, yeah, and the permanent generator, you know, and stuff you. like that. Yeah, and generation. Yeah, just in case. But it sounds like you really do not have so many problems with power outages anymore. Oh no, very very few, very few. Once in a while we get a little blowout or something like that. Blowout for a second or two, and that's about yeah. it. So, what percentage of upstate New York villages and towns would have underground power? Is it very pretty rare? Very rare, very rare. Yeah, some of their new sections, like in I think in the city of Plattsford, they're going underground. Like a new housing development, they, they go did underground. On the base, don't they? Yeah. On the base housing, they think they went underground. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pretty rare. Mostly people are still above ground. And oh, are yeah. people still constructing above ground? Are they putting in oh, new yeah, lines still, above ground? Still above ground, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it, it's costly to, to go underground and stuff. But I think in the long run, it's it's better. Do you think it would be challenging for a community that has not had a major ice or windstorm to sell the, the concept of underground compared to a place like Rouse's Point? Oh, that'd be, I think it'd be pretty hard to, to swallow for some of the villages and stuff like that to do that. Once they experienced it, though, they changed their tune. So if you're here or Malone or these other places that really got the three inches and in multiple weeks without power, it, you maybe have a different perspective. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that, that's it. And sometimes as bad as disasters are, I think they make people a lot better prepared going oh, yeah. ahead. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the National Guard came up and military to help um, give power to farmers? Yeah, farmers and uh, businesses that needed big generators. And they they drop off, like in my brother-in-law's farm, they dropped off a military generator in his yard and hooked it up to his barn so he could get his cows milked and get them, the milk to the to us, to the stores. Yeah, that's the thing with uh, dairy farms, too. The, the cows need to be milked every 12 hours, right? I mean, they were yeah. dumping a lot of the milk until the, until the National Guard came and brought the generators in. They just had to milk them by hand and dump them what they could. I see, because they couldn't pasteurize it. They couldn't process it, I they guess. Couldn't, they couldn't keep it chilled, and uh, they couldn't store it. I see. It was just too much of it. So they were just milking by hand and throwing it out. That, that they could, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Keeping a farm going is hard enough, and then when there's a disaster like that, well, it can small be... farms that could milk by hand. Even the small farms had trouble, and they were doing some of it by generators, but it yeah. wasn't big enough to to run their equipment. So the yeah. the National Guard came in and helped out. Yeah, your uncle, your uncle had a generator on the back of his tractor. Yep. Yeah. And run the the store up on the corner up here where Stewart's is. Where Stewart's is. Yeah, he had a, a, a generator in the back of his Massey Ferguson that could run all the coolers and everything. Oh, so he brought it in and hooked it up just to well, keep them. It was on the property. He had it in case of emergency. Yeah. It was him and his wife were prepared. He took some flack over getting that, but. Yeah. It sounds like uh, sometimes people got some flack for getting generators, but then when the storm hit, the people were like, hey, that's pretty valuable stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My wife said that she wanted more. So wait, so beforehand she maybe wasn't so convinced about having uh, a generator. When we were in Sam's Clubs when I bought it, she was like, "What do you need that for? What do you want that for? What do we need this?" And fifteen minutes after the power went out, the kids were playing Nintendo in the freezers, and the fridge was going, and she was happy. She had her hair dryer and coolers. Hey, yeah, she said, "Okay, now I now I get why we need a generator." And and it sounds like you wanted maybe a, she wanted another one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She said she came in after this was all done and said, "We need an extra one." <laughs> yeah. so I think now we have five. 
But, you know, that's the thing, though, with disaster stuff. I mean, disasters are pretty infrequent. So you might go eight or ten years and not need it. But then when, when you need it, it's life-changing, right? Yes, it is. And then you also remember, too, you have family members. They may need something that you have that aren't prepared as you are. That's true. If you're prepared and you can take care of yourselves, you can also bring other people in and help take care of them. Like I said earlier, I even stock MREs and freeze-dried food for months for four people. Yeah, so um, it seems like both of you are very resourceful. Um, how do you have uh, food and, and beverage and stuff prepared? What, what do you have on, on hand? Um, I have uh, plastic drums that I can put my water into out of my hot water tank and even out of my toilet if I had to on a, on a quick reserve. So, how, how much water supply do you have? I have a, it's an 85-gallon hot water tank. Um, I figured, too, with the snow, we could use that if we had to. I keep the freeze-dried MRE meals um, that you just add hot water to and uh, the MREs from the military. I think I've got, like, 12 or 13 cases of those. Wow, that's a, that's a pretty good supply. Yeah, I'm pretty well set. Yeah, that's what uh, we've seen that um, in hurricane country that sometimes, you know, the day after the storm, people might say, I, I need food, right? But it's like, okay, we need to be able to take care of ourselves and have a food and water supply, you know? Oh, and I could definitely take care of myself for a few months until help came, so. Yeah, that's good. And I've, I've seen around the country, some people are well prepared and some people are, are not well prepared. So it's, it's always better, like you said, if you can take care of yourself, then you can help out others as well. Well, today we don't have, like our grandparents did, people are not canning as much anymore right. and processing their own foods and gardens everybody is dependent on the stores i mean you ask a child today where meat comes from they go price chopper um <laughs> my kids were all brought up hunter safety they've taken their first deer i've helped other kids go through the safety course and adults and put them in front of a deer and got them into hunting and showing them that there's other things to do besides uh hanging out in the street corner you know yeah well and then that's real life skills that you can you know if there's an economic depression or a natural disaster or whatever you still have fish and deer and and uh and crops to grow and berries to pick right exactly and they feel good about it they feel that a sense of of, of self-awareness of, of satisfaction almost like an ownership like oh i can take care of my food supply if i had to yeah i tell them they've evolved yeah yeah that's like the fire department the fire department did a lot of food and stuff like that and the people would come in and eat a couple times a day. And the military or the National Guard would take and take some of the food out to the outskirts of the village and bring them food and stuff like that and, and check on the welfare of the people. Yeah, so you're taking care of the village, but then also sharing beyond that, right, with right. the others that came in. Did, did people come in from the outside that maybe needed food or needed resources? Oh, yeah, either that or they called the fire department, and the fire department would tell them what they had for resources of food and stuff. And The fire department was wonderful. It was a great asset. And people with uh, skidoos and stuff like that would take the stuff out to the people and stuff. So Sounds like the community really did come together for this oh, yeah. to help yeah. those that were less fortunate. Yeah. When Wyeth was running and stuff like that, I know there was about nine of us that had skidoos and stuff, and we'd take the people from Wyeth that worked in or lived in Vermont and Alberg or just outside of Alberg, we would take and either go across the lake with the skidoos or go to, over the bridge. So basically you were connecting in through snowmobile, right? Right. And with icy roads, that was probably the maybe the oh, quickest yeah, and was, safest way to do it. it. Blocked right off. The, the roads, hardly any traffic was on the roads at all. So actually this brings up an interesting point. You know, uh, a lot of Americans now picture transportation going along roads. In this case, we're here on the edge of Lake Champlain. We have a frozen lake that's snow covered, I'd imagine, and, and also fields that were snow covered. So possibly um, transportation by snowmobile was maybe the best way to get around. Oh, yeah. 
snowmobiles, yes. I definitely. remember in the 70s we had uh, the big snowstorm where it closed down the roads here yeah. for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was closed until the airbase came in with the snowblower and opened the roads up. Yeah. And people were getting their food from neighbors going to the store on snowmobiles. Yeah. And Ross's Point pulls together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. And it, well, it's good to think of resourceful ways to, you know, maybe uh, driving in in your car on a road isn't always the best way to go, especially if you have an ice storm like that, you know, sounds like people come together, but also people are resourceful. Oh yeah, they are. And today we've got people with four wheelers that do the same thing and uh, four wheel drive trucks that help out. And I think people are more prepared. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it. Um, At least here. At least here. They've learned. (laughs) What's the population of the village? Uh, About 2,300. And the, so, just to set it, um, to understand the context, there's a village, but then also a town. So the yeah, town is bigger. The village, village of Russell's Point, the village of Champlain, and then there's the town of Champlain, which is both. Which oh, is I both. See. Okay. Yeah. And this is Clinton County in extreme northeastern New York, right? You border Vermont and you border Quebec. Right. Yeah, you can't get any closer to either one. Than <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right up in the corner. Right? right up in the corner. You can't get any further. <laughs> Um, any other thoughts you guys can share about uh, just preparing for disasters or lessons you've learned? Uh, not at the moment. Yeah. Just be prepared for what you're not thinking is going to happen. Ah, uh, there you go. You know, don't 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 think it's going to go the way you've thought it out. So it's a, it, be prepared. Uh, be prepared for maybe the unknowns of uh, in every way you can. Yeah, anything that you can have that that sustains you or for survival that you can keep on hand is a good thing to have. So uh, food-wise, beverage-wise, but also probably clothing and uh, vehicles, medical. What about like uh, medical first aid kits, things like that? I mean, what do you have for to help with that? I have a full military trauma kit in my house with the surgical instruments. Man, I know where I'm going if uh, if I'm ever in Rouse's Point and there something goes down. I've got sutures, I've got staple guns, I've got it all. And you're really well prepared, though. And like you said, though, um, people might say, well, when would we need that? Again, you don't know until it happens, right? Well, most people that I know that know me say that I'm going to your house, Brandon. (laughs) (laughs) They're coming to you, yeah, because it sounds like you're well prepared for yourself, but also you could help out others. I'm prepared for myself and my family, and I've got extra, and I don't mind to share, but it's always good to have good, intelligent, strong, honest people around you, too. Yeah, you know, someone was just telling me last week, you know, when individuals are doing well, they can help and be a blessing to their neighbors. And then, like, when neighborhoods are doing well, that can really help the whole city, and it just keeps growing like that. But it kind of starts from from individuals just being well-prepared. Yeah, it does. You know, like I say, one hand washes the other. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. It was a joy to meet with you. And I know up the, after the ice storm, like a couple months after, three, four months after, they had a program up to the high school if you wanted to go – you could get a survivor kit. They give you a tote bag with flashlights in it and batteries, uh, a few like a few blankets, some gloves, like a can opener. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and probably stuff. I'm, I'm guessing people were into that because they're like, I could have used that. Yes, definitely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just, a, just a P33 military can opener can mean the difference of eating and not. You know, yeah. opening yeah. a can. While Brandon and Ben had some amazing insights there, not only about how the village of Rouse's Point responded to this massive ice storm, but just personal lessons and testimonies of how you can be prepared for yourself 
And like Brandon said several times, you know, you can take those extra supplies and help your family. And then your family can even help neighbors and other people in the community that are less prepared. So a lot of these tips that they provided, I think, are really personal preparedness for emergencies and disasters, no matter where you live. I wanted to expand out from Rouse's point. Again, the 1998 ice storm put at least three inches of ice over a very large area of upstate New York and southern Canada as well. I traveled to the west to see what the impacts were near Malone, New York. Malone is also fairly close to the Canadian border, I think about 10 miles south of the Canadian border. It was about 49 or 50 miles west of Rouse's Point by road. I drove out there in December 2021 and I wanted to uh, just have some conversations and hear what locals there had to say about the ice storm of 1998. I had an insightful conversation with a woman named Kathy who works in the city office there in Malone and women named Marion and Julie who worked at the Weed Library in Malone. They actually had a collage and a poster with pictures from the 1998 ice storm. All of these women had sharp recollections of the impacts from the 1998 storm and here's what they had to say. I'm, I'm here in Malone. New York is December 10th, isn't it? And I'm here with Kathy. Kathy, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. So, Kathy, you were here in 1998 during the ice storm. Uh, what, what was that like? I'd never seen anything like it before or after. It was just solid rain coming down frozen and freezing as soon as it hit. The ice had to be three to four inches thick on everything. Trees, limbs, wires, porch railings, steps, sidewalks. Um, it was just like a glaze on everything. No, it was a crust. It was uh, a coating. There was no glaze, like glazed donut. No, yeah. we're talking three to four inches thick. Wow. Um, and so obviously trees that were coming down and power lines were down. Yeah. and Trees trees were coming down. The power lines were coming down. The power was out for... I was one of the first ones back on because I lived... My house was on the main line to the National Grid building. So my house was one of the first ones back on, and it was still three three maybe four days before we came on so we were hunkered down with my brother up the up the street who had gas so we had heat at his house heat and ability to cook which I didn't have at mine and then when the power came back on everybody came to my house because I had hot water for showers <laughs> so people were kind of going where they could get electricity yeah. or water or whatever wherever you could for what was available for either heat electricity yep you made an interesting comment before we started recording. You said the inmates were really popular that week. What did you mean by that? Oh, my God, yes. Um, the inmates, in the, we have three prisons in the area, state prisons. And they took work crews from the prison inmates out to break up the ice and clear the roads and pick up the branches and all the debris and stuff. And the townspeople were really, really appreciative of them. More often than not, they're talked about in very derogatory terms. I see. All of a sudden, they're out there really helping the recovery. Yeah, they were heroes for a week or two, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. I'd imagine that a lot of linemen and electricity people came in from from far away, probably. Were they also heroes? Yeah, when they could get here. They had a tough time getting in because it was such a large area and such a large storm, and the roads were so bad, they had a hard time getting the trucks in. What they've come to do now after that is now when they see a storm coming like this, they'll bring the guys in before the storm starts. Oh, so I see. So they'll got, be proactive. and got their out-of-towners already in, ready to go out with the local guys. And we've seen that in hurricane country, too, kind of staging your resources before the storm hits. It helps your response yeah. be much quicker afterwards. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Yeah, that's interesting. So how are, are there different ways that that we build up here? For example, are there a lot of power lines underground now compared to before? Uh, are, are there changes or not as much? Um, I've noticed that they are putting more lines underground. 
now, which is a really good idea. I used to do design work for cable TV, go into franchise areas and do a cable TV design, and then cost it out in order to bid. The company would bid for the franchise. And most areas were all underground, except here. And I've noticed here now that we're, it's going more underground than aerial. Oh, like before the storm, a lot of other areas were underground, but, yeah. but here it was not. Yeah, because of the, 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 the frost line, the cold temperatures in the winter, they didn't want to have to dig up and not be able to get to it. But they realized that by putting it in the air, it was going to come down quicker in, the wet, in that kind of weather than it would be if it were underground. I see. So there was one concept. If it's underground, then you have to deal with thawing and freezing. Yeah. But I, I suppose after that massive ice storm, and, it was better to have them underground. Yeah. And if there's an issue in the winter, you got the frozen ground, you got to try to dig up to get to the line to repair it. So Yeah. So it sounds like it's a, a, a complex situation, but I guess you're just trying to say what's what's the optimal path forward. It's more like a catch-22 in this area because the weather is so extreme in every direction between the yeah. heat and the cold and have you seen other extremes in this area from heavy snowstorms or extreme cold in the winter or things like that nothing like that so that really stands when out younger, when i was younger we used to get snow we we could get three to feet three to four feet of snow in one fall okay and that was younger but not as much my, now my eighth birthday i was supposed to have my birthday's in may supposed to have a party outdoors right we had three feet of snow so that was day. a in May, you had three feet of snow. So, yeah, that, and you're probably not seeing that as much not today. Anymore, no. um, so this is really interesting because this area does get a lot of ice storms. I'd imagine going into the 1998 event, you know, so ice is forecast, but that happens quite a bit up here. So I, were a lot of people just blindsided and taken off guard? Um, to a certain extent, because we're used to getting sleet, which it could be freezing rain for a little bit, and then it'll let up and come back to snow or whatever. This was solid falling ice, instant freezing for three days. And that's never happened since or before that I remember. Well, so uh, you're waking up and the power's out. I mean, w can you remember what it's like to be living through that storm? Yeah. First thing you say is, what the heck is going on? You know, because there's cables out, so there's no news. Um, basically shut off. You're looking out the window to see if anybody else has lights on, with what's going on up and down the street. And then you're seeing all this ice and lines down and trees down. So then you turn the you get a battery radio, turn that on, find out what's going on, and get you know. We, luckily, we had cell phones, so we could. No, we didn't. That was '98. I didn't have a cell phone until '99. So that's interesting. So how do you think? Probably AM, FM radio would have been a main yeah, way. And the main, the main, the main source of news at that point. And yeah. I'm, I'd imagine people aren't really out driving around that much. It's the ice-covered roads and trees are falling, right? The majority of people were not out. Do you have your stormtroopers up here that will go out no matter what just to say they were out in it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I was talking to a few people at the library last night. They said, they said we were warned not to go out, but there were some kids and a tree almost fell on them. And people realized, wait, I, I guess trees were falling everywhere, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just like dominoes between the branches and whole trees coming down. Well, the weight of the ice on it was just, yeah. you know, you had two to three inches of ice on the, on the power lines. On top of the power line, at least two to three inches. So the lines were really sagging, They're right? Sagging and breaking and coming down all over. Yep. Did you see a lot of snap utility poles and things like that? More outside of the village. Okay. In the rural areas, that's where the poles actually came down. Within the village, they're, I think, a little more securely operated. So how would have someone um, survived the storm outside the village compared to in the village, or would it have been pretty much the same resources? No, outside the village, they were looking at anywhere from a week to two weeks. Some people were a month getting their power back on. So inside the village, it was quicker? Much, much. It's always quicker in the village. 
Sure. Everything's hooked up. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, more of a network. Any other thoughts when you think back at that time or, or like lessons learned, if there's anything that you could share with someone in another area that hasn't gone through that, what, what advice would you give them? Powdered milk, any kind of instant food or cook packaging uh, mixes that you can get that you can cook with just hot water, but have something online on hand for two or three days to have something to eat in case, because you're going to feed off the refrigerator the first couple of days because that's not running. But then after that runs out, then you're, but yeah, you want to have like a little propane camp stove. You want to have, you basically want to have camping gear handy and ready to utilize in the house. Right, because essentially you're camping at that point. You don't have electricity. You have to be self-sufficient. Yep, you are camping. There's no doubt about it, and except there's no heat. My name is Hal, by the way. What is your name? Hal, Mary. Marian, nice to meet you. And Julie, I'm at the, it's the Weir Library, is that right? Weed. Weed, Weed Library in, in Malone, New York. And um, and they were sharing with me memories of the 1998 ice storm. And the trees were cracking, huh? The trees were cracking, and uh, there's actually thunder and lightning at that time. Really? Which so was very unusual in the winter. <laughs> what? And this was for several days, the ice storm yes. went on, right? Yes, yeah, several days. And then uh, actually I took my food out of my freezer and, and put it in a cooler out and just dug a hole in the snow to keep it from going bad. Uh, so people did that. Thing, yeah. I see, because the power obviously was, power out. was out. So to save your food, people were sticking it out in the snow banks. Yeah. Yeah, that but it was still kind of warm for that even, you know, it started warming up yeah. where your food couldn't stay safe. You remember the sounds of trees falling and things like that? Oh, just hear cracks. It was creepy. It was very ominous. <laughs> and you, you had shared that they were telling people not to really go outside and walk, right? Yes, not to go out in the streets because it wasn't safe because the trees were, branches were falling and trees were falling over. And not everybody listened, huh? Not everyone listened. I had three teenagers walking down my road and then I heard a big thud and I looked out the window and a whole tree had fallen across the road right near the teenagers. So unfortunately it missed them, huh? It missed them, yes. <laughs> they took off running. So how long was power out for? Some places weeks, I think we were maybe like five days in the village. So were people mostly staying at home huddled up or did people go to shelters? You didn't Elderly, they took all the elderly from senior living and they put them in shelters. Um, but my house, my friend called me one night and she said, what's the temperature there? And I, I said, it's 45 in the house. We're just all cuddled up on the couch. And, you know, there's no lights. We're just yeah. telling stories. And um, she said, well, my husband will come get you. We have a wood stove. So I went and stayed with them for a few days till my electricity came back you on. You would stay with anybody who had a wood stove. Wow, I mean, what powerful memories and lessons learned on this podcast from our friends in extreme Northeast New York. This podcast contains some valuable lessons that cross into other hazards as well. One of the biggest lessons I learned is the value of having staging areas where resources can be collected before a disaster occurs. Kathy touched on this in her story that one of the big lessons they learned was, you know, to have an area where resources and trucks and things like that can come in before a disaster hits. Rouse's point was able to stage resources in a sense because the downtown area came back online quickly, even as surrounding areas suffered weeks without power. Linemen and other utility workers were able to stay in downtown Rouse's point because this area installed underground electric lines starting in 1991. Again, the ice storm was in 1998, so they started this work seven years before the ice storm. This enabled multiple restaurants and at least one hotel to remain operational and give utility workers a base at which they could stay. 
This is one of the biggest take-home lessons from this podcast for me. Rouse's point was the perfect test lab for this event because they were already moving in a resilient direction before the storm hit. It sounds like any opposition to underground electric lines was silenced after the big ice storm. The quick recovery of downtown Rouse's point. In some areas, they were only out of power for like six or nine hours, even though they had three inches of ice. This enabled workers to stay there at night and then eventually reach out to restore power in the surrounding areas during the day. This should provide some thought-provoking discussions among other cities that are prone to power outages, whether from ice storms, hurricanes, or wind storms. Does your community have a plan to move any of its lines underground? If not, might this be a good move in the future? What do you think? And if your city budget is small and such an idea seems overwhelming, I just want to throw this out there. Is it possible that your city could maybe bury only 5% of the electric lines, but do it in a very strategic area? I mean, could you imagine maybe a strip where five restaurants and five hotels could remain operational? Even if that's just, you know, 3% or 1% of your geographic area in your city, imagine if you had facilities that could stay operational in a disaster so that linemen, utility workers could, you know, come there, stay there, use it as a staging area, and then reach out to the rest of your city to restore power. Let's discuss this topic in our online Facebook group called GeoTrek the Community. Other topics this podcast brought up um, for me were the importance of making yourself personally resilient by stockpiling food, water, and a medical supply, as well as the importance of investing in multiple heat sources so you can stay warm if a disaster strikes in winter. These are all lessons that each of us can benefit from, even if we live in an area not vulnerable to ice storms. Thanks so much to the podcast guests that took time and a really you know heartfelt shared their messages of resiliency and went back and shared their photographs and memories with me. Um, thank you to our faithful listeners that support us and listen to us regularly and encourage us. And uh, thank you also to the GeoTrek production team that works tirelessly to put these podcasts together and do the tech support behind the scenes. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you for listening and looking forward to seeing you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Hal. Thank you so much for listening to the GeoTrek podcast. If you're wondering how we come up with such interesting topics each week, we rely on an amazing global community to help direct our scientific fieldwork, articles, and podcasts. If you have an idea for a topic or can connect us to an outstanding future podcast guest, please reach out to us on our website at geo-trek.com or on our Facebook group called GeoTrek The Community. On behalf of our GeoTrek production team, this is Dr. Hal. I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek podcast.